everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jesse Zarley, a host on the channel. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Pilar Hare about her new book, Contested Nation, the Mapuche, Bandits, and State Formation in 19th Century Chile, which was published in 2019 by the University of New Mexico Press. Pilar is an assistant professor of history at University of Pittsburgh Greensburg, where she teaches courses on Latin America and the history and culture of Spain. She is also the coordinator for the Vera I. Hines program in women in global leadership. Dr. Hare is the author of the article, The Nation State According to Whom? Mapuches in the Chilean State in Early 19th Century, which came out in the Journal of Early American History in 2014. Pilar, welcome to the show. Thank you. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about yourself, uh, where you got your PhD, what brought you to study Latin America and the Mapuche more specifically? So, uh, well, I am Chilena, um, a first generation. Uh, my parents moved here after they married in 1968. I was born in 1969 in Silver Spring, Maryland. So uh, I've lived most of my life in the United States. However, I spent a portion of my childhood in Chile and I travel back and forth constantly. So uh, that is sort of uh, some of the intrinsic interest in Chilean history. Uh, As far as where I got my PhD from, I went to graduate school at Indiana University, Bloomington. I was Peter Gardino's first ever graduate student. Um, As you know, Peter Gardino does Mexican history, not Chilean history. Uh, So, but it was an absolute pleasure working with him. And uh, yes, so I got my PhD there. And as far as my interest in the Mapuche, it's, uh, it didn't start out as an interest in the Mapuche. It started out as an interest in social movements in graduate school. And I went from social movements to state formation to the Mapuche sort of in that order. And it's been kind of an odyssey ever since. That's awesome. Turning to the book, before we get to Chile and banditry, which are the kind of beginning part of your title. Could you tell us a little bit uh, for our listeners about the Mapuche people and their relationship with the Spanish crown? Sure. Uh, So the Mapuche people are actually uh, a group of different indigenous groups. Uh, They have different names depending on their location in uh, their territories, which is called Araucanía. This is uh, historically the period of the territory between the Bio Bio River to the north and the Tolten River to the south, and this is in southern Chile. Uh, throughout most of their history, uh, the Mapuche peoples uh, were different groups that were uh, spoke Mapundum, the same language, uh, but they uh, were not necessarily united, and um, they spent the better part of the colonial period fighting uh, for uh, their autonomy under the Spanish crown through various periods of uh, unrest, rest, peace, war, peace, war, and so on. Um, They were not 
ever fully conquered under the Spanish Empire, uh, which makes them very different from other indigenous groups, such as the Mexica in Mexico or the Inca in uh, Peru and Bolivia, for example. So to kind of pull this into the kind of 19th century, and you really begin with the late Spanish period and the wars of independence, Chile's 19th century kind of historiographically, from its independence wars, its inter-ethnic borderlands politics with the Mapuche and its process of state formation, usually isn't considered alongside more emblematic cases like Peru or Mexico, for instance, as I'm sure you experienced in grad school. Uh, I did. Um, yes, <laughs> could, I did. You us, <laughs> could you tell us a bit about how the Mapuche, the topic of banditry, and Chile's evolving constitutionalism and sense of citizenship, how does that add to this broader literature on 19th century Latin America? Well, for starters, uh, Chile was sort of considered the exception in Latin America, uh, as most of our um, listeners probably know, um, the vast majority of Latin American countries, newly independent countries, spent the better part of the 19th century attempting to figure out who they were and how they wanted to be and how they wanted to form a state. And um, in cases such as Mexico in particular, there was constant fighting between liberals and conservatives and foreign interventions and so on. And Chile was seen as sort of the exception to this. It was seen as a country that was that achieved independence and was able to form a nation state relatively early in the process of 19th century nation state formation. And um, they, you know, for all intents and purposes, uh, the Chilean elite seemed to get it politically right in that uh, it was a, a stable uh, country. It was a stable political entity, and therefore it was able to grow economically uh, rather quickly um, and uh, surpassed some of its larger neighbors, at least earlier in the century. So, for example, if you compare Chile to Argentina, uh, Chile was effectively a much more uh, co- coherent, cogent nation state than Argentina was that you couldn't even name Argentina as a state basically until about 1870. So I would, I would, I would argue, or I guess the historiography tends to argue that uh, unlike some of its neighbors and other countries, you know, minus Brazil, of course, uh, that Chile, uh, Chile, uh, achieved a politically stable nation state relatively early in the 19th century. And a lot of this is because, as some of the historiography talks about, particularly the older historiography, is that it was a homogeneous state. Uh, and so therefore, it didn't have to deal with some of these undesirables like some of these other countries did. So I'd like to ask all of my uh, guests, if possible, um, a little bit about your source, your source base and the archival work you did. Um, one of the methodological challenges that scholars of the, the Mapuche and other people who have avoided the state have is how to locate and stitch together the motivations and events that challenge the framings of the kind of colonial, the Spanish and the national archives. Could you tell us a little bit about how and where you encountered your primary sources that allow you to reconstruct 
uh, the histories of Mapuche people as well as bandits who lived well beyond the reach of of the legal the legal reach of first Spain and then subsequently Chile. Uh, I spent uh, quite a bit of time in uh, the Archivo Nacional in Santiago. Uh, I am lucky in the sense that Chile has done a a rather exceptional job of centralizing uh, the vast majority of its uh, heritage or historical documentation. And um, I, I know this is particularly true for the colonial period and for most of the 19th century. My biggest challenge, of course, was that uh, about uh, 90% or more of the documentation that I looked at uh, was either Spanish or um, Chilean. Um, And so I had to tease out uh, um, Mapuche intentions or Mapuche goals or uh, feelings or any of those kinds of things, because uh, the vast, like I said, the vast majority of documentation I used, including newspapers and things like this, uh, were all uh, written by, of course, uh, you know, Chileans and not Mapuche. So it, it, and even in the case of bandits, uh, you know, the, the bandits that I study, the Pincheta brothers in particular, they tended to be, um, you would, you would call them in modern day parlance, you would probably call them mestizos. And there's, I believe three existing letters from one of the Pinchetas themselves. Uh, but other than that, uh, a lot of it is just coming from, people who interacted with the Pinchetas, most of these people tended to be military. So a lot of military dispatches, letters going back and forth between military officers uh, are the kinds of things that I looked at. That's great. And I think that that questions and answers like that are super helpful for graduate students and undergrads who are kind of beginning to embark or thinking of embarking on on kind of kindred projects to what uh, you and and I have worked on. Um, so to turn a little bit to the body of the book and return to uh, the structure and the content, uh, you move roughly chronologically through the 19th century, but you shift focus back and forth between Santiago, the capital, and the south, primarily Araucanía, and the Andes east of Chillán and south of Mendoza and what would have been Rio de la Plata and now Argentina, uh, territory largely controlled by the Pehuenche. Um, so to kind of bring us back briefly to your discussion of Chilean exceptionalism as a as both a historiographical issue as well as a nationalist myth. Um, could you go over the uh, what can only be described as chaotic period from Chile's declaration of independence in the 18 teens until the passage of the very important 1833 constitution? Right, uh, <laughs> it's chaos. Um, so uh, uh, Chile. Um, first declared, not really declared, but kind of talked about independence way back in about 1810, although uh, independence didn't officially come until 1818. Um, However, there was a considerable contingent of Spanish generals and uh, remnants of a Spanish army that um, remained in Chile's southern city of Concepcion uh, 
with the intense uh, and with the purposes of regaining uh, what the territory it had lost to the um, to the new Chileans or uh, to the rebels uh, back for the crown. And so as soon as Chile's leaders, people like Bernardo Higgins, San Martin, who went off to go liberate Peru after helping some uh, O'Higgins in Chile, um, had a, a considerable uh, problem on its hands because Santiago may have been liberated, but Concepcion was anything but liberated. And um, any points south of Concepcion were anything but liberated as well. So uh, the the newly formed Chilean government spent the better part of the next 12 to 15 years uh, uh, systematically working its way south to first get rid of any Spanish officers and officers. uh, members of Spanish, uh, former Spanish armies, and then uh, consequently um, continued to push itself south because the, the 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 central government in Santiago believed that Chile's southern border was actually all the way down to uh, and basically Antarctica, uh, which of course means the rest of the continent. Uh, but the people who lived in the south the Mapuche primarily, didn't believe that at all. And so there was a a lot of um, conflict uh, between the central government and Santiago that spent the better part of the 1820s that I talk about in the chapter on uh, the view of this from the state, uh, trying to uh, basically create itself as a national state. It passed... uh, four constitutions. At one point, it dissolved itself into federal units, um, trying to figure itself out on a national scale, while at the same time, fighting an actual war, first against uh, remaining Spanish soldiers, and also at the same time, fighting against um, Mapuche groups who had no intentions of recognizing uh, the Spanish state uh, or the new, not the Spanish state, the new uh, Chilean state. And part of this um, is is also I- indicative of um, some policies that uh, the national government pursued in that it pardoned a lot of uh, former Spanish um, uh, loyalists and attempted to bring them into what it called the new uh, patria familia or or, uh, familia chilena, as we call it, or the Chilean family, in its attempt to um, uh, sort of consolidate a state, but at the same time uh, prevent further conflict. So there there was that part of it going on, mostly in places like Santiago, but then there was also the um, conflict in the South where you had competing Mapuche groups that um, several Mapuche decided to ally with the new Chilean state. And then there were those who were holdouts and remain loyalist uh, to the crown, remain loyal to the crown, at least until 1824. And so uh, it was an absolute total period of of, of, of chaos in essence. And so this idea that Chile 
you know, declared independence in 1818, and then bam, it was this solid national state is false. It 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 uh, it was a it was about as messy as some other countries uh, right after independence, uh, pretty much until 1833 and the passing of the Constitution of 1833, where things changed rather dramatically. Thank you. And in your next your next two chapters, you really, I guess, three chapters, technically, but three and oh, four. Is, sorry, can I add one thing to that? Sure. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so one of the things that I, I, I talk a lot about in... Um, in this chapter is issues of citizenship, uh, which is sort of an occurring theme within the book. And that is that these constitutions that the national government passed first in 1818, then in 1822, then in 1823, then in 1828, and then finally the 1833 constitution, which was in place in Chile until 1924, um, they had various uh, stipulations on who exactly was a citizen of this new uh, state. And most of these were very liberal in context, particularly the 1823 Constitution uh, set all kinds of property requirements, literacy requirements. Of course, only men could become uh, citizens. And one of the arguments that I make is that the Mapuche were property owners, yet they were never considered citizens at any time. Um, then in, you know, in 1828, some of these, uh, the 1828 constitution, uh, basically loosened some of these requirements, which were then reimposed in 1833. But at no time were the Mapuche who met most of these requirements, except for the fact that they were not Europeans, um, were never considered citizens. And and that's a very sort of, uh, I think that's very much in keeping with the racist notions that uh, elites in Latin America had in the 19th century, which does not make Chile the exception under any circumstances. I'm glad you brought that up. That reminded me of a, of a point you made. Um, I, maybe if we can think about, or you can comment on uh the real significance of the difference between citizenship and vassalage in mm. vassalage of the Spanish crown, citizenship to an independent nation, and the flexibility and inflexibility that those categories came to hold for the Mapuche, I think is a, is a really important contribution of the book. Um, so if you might comment on what were the kind of disjunctures between subjects to the crown and citizens or not excluded citizens of the Chilean nation. Right. So uh, <laughs> when I was writing some, several of the chapters, uh, this was a subject that I had been pondering for some time. Um, this was particularly evident in the parlamentos or the peace treaties, which I'm sure you'll ask me about in a minute, uh, came up a lot in the texts of these treaties in that, you know, throughout the entire colonial period, um, the Mapuche seemed to accept to a certain extent that they were vassals or subjects of the Spanish crown. And in these treaties, it was often repeated that they would be subjects of the crown, that they would uh, have the same enemies as the enemies of the Spanish crown and, um, and so on. But what was really interesting about when I did this analysis of these peace treaties is that 
even in the earlier peace treaties uh, prior to the 18th century, uh, there was always this sense of political autonomy for the Mapuche, that they were vassals of the Spanish crown, um, but maybe politically, in other words, we believe in your king, and yes, we'll accept missionaries in our territory, and we might pay attention to them and maybe become Christian, but uh, we're still a political entity that's separate from you. And the Spanish crown seemed to accept that, uh, at least in the written documentation. Um, and this, but but at the same time, you're, you're a subject of a, as a vassal, you're a subject of, of, of the crown, of the empire. And what, so I think what, what the switch that occurs once independence take place is that the Chilean government continued, I think, to believe that the Mapuche were still vassals except not of the Spanish crown. They just switched over to becoming vassals of the Chilean state. But not only were they vassals, they now didn't have that political autonomy or I would argue independence because their territory now, at least according to the government, belonged to the Chilean state and not to the Mapuche themselves. And there was nothing to replace that. So instead of becoming citizens in this new formulation, in this new nation state, they uh, not only lost their lands, but had no way of becoming, uh, had no representation, even though um, they traditionally had had some representation. And I think that this is a, at least this is my thesis or part of my thesis. I I am convinced that, This is partly why, at least in the 1820s, many of the Mapuche that I study, particularly the Pehuenche, refused to become members of this new formed Chilean Republic. And um, I think it's problematic because, of course, by the end of the 19th century, they pretty much lose everything. That's a great point, and actually a helpful segue. So one of the ways that uh, your chapter three is titled Enemies of the State, and I think one of the ways that both, well, that the Mapuche, particularly the Pehuenche, become threatening is through uh, the support of some of their support for the Pinchera Montanera, the bandit organization. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about, they're they're an interesting cast of characters. Uh, If you could tell us a little bit about the Pincheras, uh, why they turned to banditry, and what kind of bandits, or how do you characterize their actions in, in the early 19th century? Right. So uh, there were originally four pinchetas. Uh, the oldest um, uh, sort of uh, became very disillusioned uh, with what was going on with independence around 1817. And so he formed uh, essentially just a a montonera, which is technically just a group of people on horseback and decided to go out on his own pretty much. And um, uh, he was killed pretty early on. Um, 
the interesting thing about the pinchetas is that they uh, they come from a, a southern city called Chillán, which is uh, it's north of Concepcion and it's east of Concepcion. It literally sits in the in the foothills of the Andes Mountains, which is Pehuenche territory, and they. Um, Traditionally, all four brothers had a very close relationship growing up with the Pewentes. And so they had formed ties in their local communities with Pewentes Indians from early on. And uh, the oldest brother, um, you know, recruited from Pewentes to, to, for his montonera. And he was killed early on. His next brother, Santos, uh, was the least interested in fighting at all. He uh, had the, probably the closest relationship with the indigenous communities, um, and he drowned in a river um, in the early 1820s. So pretty much the two youngest brothers, Pablo and José Antonio Pincheira, were the two uh, the big players um, throughout this chaotic period of the 1820s that uh, Vicuña McKenna was a famous 19th century historian and a liberal uh, famously called La Guerra Muerte or the War of the Death. Um, so Pablo, at least according to the documentation, uh, particularly Vicuña McKenna, who was no, uh, I would argue, is an incredibly biased uh, um uh, observer. Um, he wrote a book called La Guerra Muerte about this particular period of chaos and fighting. And in it, he essentially describes Pedro as this sort of blood-sucking, uh, horrible criminal who's out to destroy haciendas and kill people and raise, you know, havoc. Um, the reality, of course, was much more complicated. Uh, the Pinchetas, uh, since time immemorial, had been very involved in the uh, local economy of their region, which consisted of cattle rustling, um, ostrich trading, and so on, and salt. They were involved in the salt trade with the Pewentas. And salt was a crucially important uh, ingredient here because salt was used to uh, preserve meat when um, at a time when there was no such thing as refrigeration. So uh, it was very important. And um, I think the, the, the looting and the, um, the what, what, what are called as malones in the, uh, in, in the indigenous uh, side of things uh, or the raiding had, had more to do with um, I would argue uh, the, the the Pinchetas, Pablo and his younger brother, uh, essentially uh, became or had royalist tendencies, uh, at least until 1824. They allied with uh, Vicente Benavides, who had been a member of the army at some point, defected, became a bandit. And then uh, they also allied with some Spanish officers who were still in the region until 1824, Pico being one of them. And they did this, I believe, because they wanted to protect their lucrative holds on trans-Andean commerce, because not only did they trade on the Chilean side, but they also traded on the what would be called today Argentina. It was not at the time. And um, the 
the incursions on the part of the Chilean army uh, prevented them from uh, fully uh, uh, achieving their their goals in terms of their uh, vast network of uh, commercial enterprises. And so I think that they uh, were royalist, uh, at least in the beginning, because they believed that the the newly formed Chilean state was not going to uh, effectively respect their uh, their power, their their economic and political clout in the region where they were from. Now, after 1824, the Spanish are really basically uh, dissolved at this point, and. Um, but I think that the uh, Pincheta brothers themselves realized that it wasn't so much uh, fealty to the crown per se, which obviously didn't exist anymore, um, but it was the fact that they did not want a state that was going to uh, sub, uh, subsume them into uh, um, being being partial citizens or not citizens because the state considered them to be criminals. And so there's a lot of uh, historiography and a lot of literature on banditry that talks about banditry as either being a cultural phenomenon or uh, a social phenomenon where you have a lot of ties to local elites who sustain your activities, provide you with supplies when you need them, housing when you need it, and so on. Um, I'm, I'm arguing a slightly different thing here in that the Pinchetta brothers were all of that and more. They effectively became political actors. Uh, they were effectively political bandits. They did not want the formation of a new nation state that was going to uh, prevent them from um, exercising their political and economic power in a rather large region, if you include Argentina as well. And one of the um, examples that I point out in the book is this uh, really interesting treaty that uh, Pincheta, um, the two Pincheta brothers have in 1829 in the city of Mendoza, which is actually modern day Argentina. They go to Mendoza and they um, have a treaty with the leader of Mendoza at the time where they effectively say, hey, we are here to help you. Uh, and we will help you as long as uh, us helping you doesn't interfere with us being Chileans, which is kind of ironic because the uh, the Pinchetas never considered themselves to be Chileans, at least in terms of the nation state Chileans. And so my my argument here is that they are effectively using political labels, whether they are royalist or Chilean or something else, or Argentinian in this case, uh, to um, protect their political and economic interests in the region, which included their very complicated relationship with the Puente indigenous community. And I think that's what uh, makes them a national threat to the Chilean government at the time. So it, it's not just that they were a threat in the Chilean region. They become a national threat to the effectiveness of the nation state. And therefore, in the eyes of the government of the Chilean state, they need to be eliminated. 
And I, I think that chapter really gets at a lot, a really excellent description of kind of their motivations and their how they navigate uh, their interest from the Spanish period, the flexibility they had, the power they had, um, and how that really changes with the with the post independence period, with the emergence of a kind of centralizing nation state. To kind of shift gears in a similar fashion, though, um, how you know in chapter four, before we talk about parlamentos. Did various Mapuche leaders, uh, particularly folks like Francisco Mariluan and others, navigate um, the challenges, the, the, the new factors, the militarization of the South, while trying to maintain the, their interests and independence that they'd enjoyed under, under Spanish rule? Right. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's super, it's super interesting. Uh, so if you take the case of Mariwilan, for example, so uh, Mariwilan was an Arribano, uh, and he had a uh, considerable uh, uh, political clout within his particular uh, indigenous group. Uh, but what's really interesting about what's going on within Mapuche society as a whole is that there's this concept or this, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you want to call it a, a myth, that the, the, the Mapuche were always united. You know, they, 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 it's from the colonial period on, they were united, and this was what made them successful in combating first the Spanish Empire and then, of course, the Chilean state. And that is not the case. Uh, they were not uh, united. They would form alliances when it was convenient for each party. Uh, whenever each party had something to gain from that alliance, they would form alliances. But they often fought very much against each other, uh, either for territorial gain or for economic gain uh, or for political clout. And um they were the 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 under the Spanish crown. Uh, the Spanish uh, officials sometimes attempted to use these sort of loosely defined alliances uh, for the benefit of of of, of the Spanish uh, Empire. Um, they weren't always successful, but what what ends up happening, unfortunately, by um, independence and post independence is that with the uh, fracturing of um, uh, royalists on one side and patriots on the other, that same thing happened within Mapuche communities themselves, where they divided themselves up as royalists and as patriots. And um, sometimes that that, uh, um, alliance also superseded previous linkages that these groups had with one another. And what the Spanish government did very effectively after independence is that it, uh, it, it, it took advantage of these, uh, um, of the weakening of these linkages uh, in effect to bolster the uh, strength of the state vis-a-vis the Mapuche groups. And Maruilan is one of these cases where uh, he um, had a lot of very strong ties uh, to other indigenous groups. And 
he uh, attempts early on in about 1825, he uh, makes some, he has communications with uh, military authorities saying, hey, I would like to capitulate to the state. I think I'm, I'm in that position now. I, I think I'd be better off and so on. But there is a lot of um, discontent among his followers uh, thinking that he's become a traitor, that how could you do this to us? And um, so he he tries, or he effectively does, uh, capitulate to the state in 1825. And the state says, okay, you know, you're, you're now doing this. This is fantastic, uh, except for the fact that it doesn't last. Uh, Maruilan realizes that all the promises that the state had made to him about him keeping his land and uh, being able to administer his land and all this other kind of stuff wasn't going to come through. And so he ends up uh, reneging um, and joins the Pinchetas uh, instead. Um, and then for two years, he he fights against the state, but then decides to change his mind again in 1827, where he completely, uh, he, it's, uh, I guess the modern term for this is that some Apucha groups would say he sold out um, to the state. Um, obviously, that's not the term that was used back then. But um, so... My point in talking about Maruilan, though, and others is that um, Mapuche alliances were uh, were complicated and they were ever shifting. They 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 were not static alliances, and um, that that functioned very well throughout the entire colonial period when the physical presence of the Spanish crown tended to be scarce in the Southern territories, just because the Spanish crown just didn't have the money and there was no standing army. This drastically changed post-independence when you now have a nation state that has a for- formidable resources in terms of a formidable army and militia and is willing to use that army to achieve its goals of outright uh, annexing uh, Mapuche territory and and effectively conquering uh, the Mapuche. And and I use the term conquering on purpose because this was not, um, well, you know, we're going to, you sell us your land and you become citizens. It's not the case at all. It really is a conquest. Um, So the... What ends up happening is that the uh, the Chilean government ends up um, cultivating these these fractured relationships amongst the different indigenous groups. So, uh, as an example, uh, the the Pehuentes of Chillán were major enemies of a, a group of other group of Pehuenches who were further south. They were called the Trapa Trapa Pehuenches. These were mortal enemies. They had been mortal enemies for hundreds of years. And um, they, the, uh, the government decided to send a campaign down there that uh, used the Trapa Trapa Pehuenches to go after these uh, Tuyan Pehuenches who happened to be allied with the Pinchetas. 
unfortunately for these Trapa Trapa Pewinches, however, is that they traded with the Pinchetas and these other Pewinches, and they had uh, trade ties that were um, that required things like, uh, you know, if you trade in my territory, I'll protect you from raids from other groups and so on and vice versa. And all of a sudden, the Tapa Tapa Pewinches, by allying with the Chilean states, uh, were effectively saying to the Pinchetas, we're no longer interested in trade or protection from you because we now have it from the state. And it turns out that that particular expedition led by a general by the name of Yushef, uh did not really succeed. This was in 1826-1827. Did not really succeed in its its goal of um, capturing and conquering this particular area. Uh, They they succeeded in scattering a bunch of Pewentius's men, uh, but they regrouped. And five years later, um, you know, they regrouped and a, a year later were back to doing their thing. But the people who lost the most from this alliance uh, for the benefit of the state, of course, were the Chapa Chapa Pewinches, who not only did not get what they were promised from the state, but then now had to deal once again with Pinchetas and Chiyan Pewinches, whom they had had relatively working relationships with, now were complete enemies again. So it, it, it really, um, not to belabor the point, uh, I guess to sum everything up, is that these um, two basic themes here, uh, I would argue that um, Pewentes, or not Pewentes, but Mapuche in general, had complicated uh, relationships with each other, the different groups did. And with independence and the chaos of the 1820s, those relationships became even more complicated, more fractured, and the strength of the new nation state, the Chilean Republic, uh, effectively used those uh, uh, weaker ties to... um, to gain territory and to make uh, the Mapuche submit, which is essentially what Maruilan ended up doing in 1827, finally. Maruilan's story, I think, uh, as you point out, is is kind of a watershed in a number of reasons, spelling the end, in, you know, at least in the, the Chilean side of the Guerra Muerte, for the most part. Um, and... But as you talk about in Chapter 5, it also represents a watershed in uh, interethnic diplomacy, diplomacy between Criollos and Spaniards and the Mapuche, particularly the most famous example of this being the Parlamento or Coyang in in Mapurunco. So I was wondering if you could discuss a little bit what Parlamentos were and your, your, your understanding of how they changed from the end of the Spanish period into the 19th century, particularly as the military, Chilean military, begins occupying Araucania. Right. Um, so I, this is one of my favorite things. Um, so the, you're absolutely right. The, the Parlamento was a diplomatic tool that the uh, Mapuche uh, used very, very effectively throughout the entire colonial period. The first uh, 
the, the first parliamento actually took place in Kiyin in 1641. And um, essentially what these were, uh, th there were several components to a parliamento. It was, um, um, it, it, the, the idea was to uh, come to an agreement that would benefit both sides and prevent warfare. Um, by the 18th century, uh, these parliamentos became huge uh, multi-day events. And there is a particular Chilean historian whose name I cannot recall at the moment who wrote an incredible article about this. And uh, essentially, these were uh, three, four, five-day events where you had literally thousands of people get together in usually a flat area that tended to be a neutral area between uh, Spanish territory and Mapuche territory. And you had uh, loncos, who were the Mapuche leaders, uh, from different groups come together and um, state their demands uh, in front of Spanish authorities. And there were all these ritualistic aspects to these that included things like having a cane. Um, each of the loncos would have a specific cane denoting his group. Um, he would have uh, linguaraces, who were all of the translators, mosetones, his warriors would be with him. And they would they would um, essentially, uh, you know, spend three, four, five, six hours in a speech to Spanish authorities explaining their particular grievances and what they wanted out of this parliamento and so on. Um and this would literally go on for days. And then, uh, you know, the Spanish would bring gifts with them. And a lot of these gifts included things like uh, wine, for example. Uh, wine was very much coveted by Mapuche. They really liked wine. And um, things like meat. Uh, and so, you know, the Spanish government spent thousands of pesos that it really didn't have in... Uh, essentially uh, accommodating all of the Mapuche groups at what was effectively a Mapuche diplomatic, uh, what's the word for it, mechanism. In other words, all of these uh, ritualistic aspects of it were Mapuche. They were not Spanish. And so just in order for the Spanish to get uh some concessions, the Spanish essentially had to come to the table and follow indigenous rules, so to speak, throughout these uh, parliamentos. And as this one, um, as this historian talks about in her article, uh, in the 18th century, these tended to be, uh, uh, you know, times of celebration, of, of culture, of singing and dancing and feasting, uh, as well as diplomacy, of course. And they, they, they had uh, specific uh, tenants, you know, of course, as I mentioned earlier, the Spanish uh, claimed, of course, that the Mapuche were going to be vassals and there were several other things as well. Uh, but it, effectively, what these parliamentos did is that it did bring periods of peace in Araucanía where a lot of trading took place. A lot of um, uh, cross-ethnic uh, relationships took place. Uh, Chilean settlers would come down um, 
excuse me, not to lay in Spanish, Criollo settlers would come down, cross into Mapuche territory and, and so on and such and vice versa. This concept uh, of the Parlamento um, really, really drastically changed after the Parlamento of Tapiwe in 1825. So the Parlamento of Tapiwe of 1825 was when Maruilan uh, first um, surrenders to the state. And in that Parlamento, he is one lonco who represents 14 different communities. So rather than having 14 different loncos, there's one. And there, the, the, the festivities and the, the indigenous cultural output of a parlamento is no longer apparent in 1825. Uh, furthermore, um, what happened throughout the colonial period is that it, almost every single parlamento that I studied, there's many, many more than the ones that I talked about, uh, but for the most part, the, the Mapuche maintained political autonomy under the Spanish crown. They, they, it was, you know, whether the Spanish meant it or didn't mean it or whatever, the language is there in that uh, Mapuche territory remained politically distinct from Spanish territory. This is not the case in 1825. In 1825, uh, Maruilan comes to the table as a subject of Chile. He's not an independent loco, even though he represents 14 communities. These are 14 communities that have been subjugated to the state. And from that moment on, uh, subsequent parlamentos, first of all, they're not even called parlamentos, they're called tratados, or I guess you could call them agreements. Um, it, they, they get shorter and shorter. Um, there's one in the 1860s that was two hours long versus, you know, in, in the colonial period when you had five or six days worth of feasting. And and it, it, it becomes very clear that the um, the Spanish state post-1825 is effectively using what was an indigenous uh, diplomatic uh, uh, tool, a very effective digital uh, indigenous, excuse me, indigenous tool for the benefit of the Chilean state and the cost of the Mapuche, who were the originators of that tool to begin with. Um, so that's where the biggest differences lie pre-independence, post-independence with parlamentos. What's interesting, though, is that uh, depending on how you read these parlamentos, because of course they're all Spanish documents, right? So uh, how you read these parlamentos in the colonial period or post-independence period, uh, I believe that at no point in time did the Spanish ever think uh, or fully agree that the Mapuche were independent political entity, even though that's not how the Mapuche saw it. So... Um, so the perspectives are, are very different, but it's interesting how the state uh, basically manipulates and incorporates 
an indigenous tool to achieve its own ends in the 19th century. And I will add, too, that uh, parlamentos are a, a very unique um, uh, concept in Spanish America. Uh, they're more akin to perhaps uh, what we did here in North America uh, with uh, our own indigenous groups. And so, um, the, and, and the fact that they exist and still survive is, 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 is I think, a testament to, uh, at least throughout the colonial period, to, to Mapuche uh, um, diplomatic um uh, canniness and uh, and and effectiveness in 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 maintaining uh, full political independence. Thank you for that. That you know, I think that's a really great point, and I think uh, it also speaks to the idea about how growing scholarship on how independence movements across the America uh, for for most for autonomous and sovereign. Native and Indigenous peoples often resulted in a constriction of their and a limiting of their independences enjoyed during the colonial period, as opposed to kind of a flourishing of more independence for them. Um, Pilar, we, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, thank you so much for being on the show and telling us a little bit about your work. Uh, one final question: I know you've just fin- the book is just out recently, um, and you probably are pro- going to be taking a break, but. Uh, are there any any irons in the fire or or projects you're thinking about working on now or in the future? Well, actually, <laughs> uh, I have been working on a digital project um, that I conceived of while I was working on the book, um, and uh, so this is is eventually this is going to be a digital edition, uh, whereby I am taking a. Subset of parlamentos, uh, both from the 18th century and the ones in the 19th century, and the idea is to um, put them in a digital environment where you can um, see it in both the original Spanish and the translated English. Uh, you can search uh, terms to see how those terms, like, for example, nación, like what did that mean in the 18th century versus the 19th century? Did it change? If so, why and how? And um, do some data visualization on the site. Uh, this is an opportunity for scholars who don't have access to these documents or don't speak Spanish could actually read these documents in English. Um the idea is also to have a teaching module incorporated into the digital edition so that uh, people like you and myself and others could use parlamentos uh, as teaching tools in the classroom uh, to teach about indigenous history. Um, so that is in progress at the moment. It's slow going. I'm working with a colleague of mine here at Pitt Greensburg. She's also a Chilena. She's our, uh, one of our Spanish professors. And uh, she's helping me with the translation. Uh, but these, these documents take a long time. Uh, we're working on the Parliament of 1803 right now. And that document is 27 pages long. So... Uh, yeah, it's a, it's, it's, it's a pretty dense topic. So I'm working on that. And um, I'm also in the very, 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 very preliminary stages of possibly writing a um, 
a history of the Anglican Church in Chile. Uh, the Anglican Church started as an expatriate church in Chile, but the Anglican Church also has a lot of missionary ties to the Mapuche in southern Chile, and that's where my interest lies. But again, I'm I'm in a very preliminary stage at this point, so that's where I'm at. Wow, that's awesome! I feel like we should have started the show with the digital project. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us. Um, I, I'm personally, I very much enjoyed the book. I'm personally very excited about your project, your upcoming project. And I want to thank you for being uh, being on the show with me today. Thank you so much. Uh, I really, really appreciate this opportunity that you have provided me. Well, take care, Pilar. And, uh, and hopefully we'll talk again soon. All righty. Thanks again.